Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. How Shakespeare Seasoned Justice with Mercy by Anthony Baker In order to act with mercy towards someone, must I forego a sense of justice? If I decide to act justly, have I decided to leave mercy behind? These are questions of philosophers and theologians. They also provide some of the thickest philosophical and theological ponderings of William Shakespeare. A studied contemplation of mercy and justice does not, of course, originate with the Elizabethan playwright. For as long as humans have pondered how to order their civic spaces, they have puzzled over the demands of each. Around 500 BCE, Rabbi Yehuda is recorded as having said that God spends three hours a day on a throne of justice before getting up and crossing over to a throne of mercy, on which he spends an equal length of each day. 200 years later, when Plato devoted his most famous dialogue to the question of justice, he gave only the slightest nod to mercy, acknowledging that the just ruler would need a reputation for generosity. Though many of Shakespeare's plays notice the interaction or lack of interaction of these two qualities, The Tempest and nearly all of the history plays, for instance, he penned two for what seems to me the explicit purpose of letting these two ancient enemies fight it out on stage. I'll focus on one of these and return briefly below to the other. The first, Measure for Measure takes its title from a line from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is a signature move of the bard to take a religiously charged line, doctrine or even person, and make theatre out of them. While some have argued that this was all he was doing with religion or theology, I have suggested that he's doing more. He's mining the depths of faith language to see if he can find gems that we might be missing if we only pay attention to the identity politics of Reformation-era England. Grace is grace despite of all controversy, one character in this play says. That could be the tagline for Shakespeare's theological interventions. We see Shakespeare having some of his typical fun with religion in Measure for Measure. The Duke of Vienna gives away his power in order to go abroad, as he claims, for a piece of international politics. In fact, he sneaks back into the city immediately, now disguised as a friar, a member of a religious order like the Franciscans. He tells the friar who lends him the robes that he is doing this because he has made an irresponsible practice of letting the city's strict laws and biting statutes slip. He has, that is to say, been more of a merciful father than a just ruler. He doesn't want to unbind this tied-up justice himself, since he fears this would cause his people to question his integrity. But you've always been so merciful before now. So, he contrives a plan to deputise one of the nobles, Lord Angelo, to be the hammer of justice in his stead. He also hints that there are other reasons for his disguise. I'll come back to that bit of foreshadowing. Angelo immediately finds an episode in need of his firm hand, 
A gentleman named Claudio has got his girlfriend Julietta pregnant. There are, in fact, circumstances that seem worth considering. The two are engaged and are only waiting for her to receive her dowry to get that arranged before they go to church. But Angelo will not hear of clemency. He is severe, one noble remarks. This is as it should be, a wise old lord responds. Mercy is not mercy that oft looks so, he says, perhaps angling gently at a critique of the Duke's mode of operation. At this point in the play, we have our two adversarial qualities in neat, separate containers. One container, called the Duke, is only merciful. But this container must be removed from the state so that the other, called Angelo, can display its contents of merciless justice. But as this is Shakespeare, things quickly begin to get messy. Angelo turns out to be hiding secrets. The old lord, having hinted that the Duke is over-merciful, now suggests that Angelo is being a bit hard on Claudio. He cautiously suggests that, had time and place given opportunity, Angelo himself might have come to the wrong side of the law. Angelo's response says more perhaps than he means to. What's open made to justice, that justice seizes. Justice only deals with what it can see, in other words. We pick up a jewel on the ground, only when it catches the light. Buried or soiled, we walk straight past it or even trample it. This is our first hint of Shakespeare's subversion of the polarised containers. Listening to Antonio's speech, we've begun to wonder if, lacking the slightest trace of mercy, justice doesn't in fact begin to look a little unfair. And then we see Angelo acting on his theory. Claudio's sister comes to him to beg for her brother's life. Angelo is quickly captivated by her beauty and soon offers her a deal. If she will meet him for sex in the garden, secretly of course, so that the crime cannot be unjust, he will let Claudio free. This offer obviously shows the rot in his theory of justice, as he is forming a contract, a just bond, around blackmail and rape. But it also ruins mercy, since his proposed pardon of Claudio is not merciful at all, but simply the meeting of one end of a just bargain. Our neat containers have nearly dissolved around their contents. Mercy is not mercy that oft looks so, but justice is not justice that only looks so. Justice as merciless as Angelo's turns out to be unjust, in the same way that mercy without justice turns up bereft of mercy. This is why the Duke left and it's why Angelo fails as his deputy. But the Duke has returned, and now we begin to see what his secret purposes are. He goes to visit Claudio for confession and counsel, and also goes to Claudio's sister for comfort and advice. Here is one of the delightful places where Shakespeare plays with religious stereotypes. The controversy of grace that I mentioned above is for Shakespeare's audience an all-too-familiar one over whether God saves us through our works, and so through a contractual justice, or through grace, which is to say through an act of unearned mercy. The Catholic Church was generally, though not often accurately, 
associated with the former, the Protestants with the latter. But here is a Catholic friar, or at least a disguised one, who enters as the personified mercy. The Duke slash friar devises a plan, and nearly goes as awry as the more famous friar's plan in Romeo and Juliet, which is to say that our comedy nearly becomes a tragedy. I won't give away the ending, if you've forgotten or never made it through, but I'll offer a hint. The Duke, on his return, is no longer an embodiment of unjust mercy as he was before. Now he sees clearly that true mercy is just, and true justice is mercy. The two must kiss, as the psalm puts it. His clever idea for resolution is all about allowing mercy and justice to exchange a kiss. The more familiar play in which Shakespeare lets us watch the battle of justice and mercy is The Merchant of Venice. Here we find the story of maybe the strangest contract made since the dawn of commerce. If a merchant defaults on his loan, the moneylender will claim an entitlement to a pound of flesh. Is this mutually agreed upon contract unjust or simply merciless? The religious fun is rampant in this play as well. The lender is a Jew and the merchant is a Christian. But if the Jew's strict call for commercial exactitude gets tempered by his excessive love for his daughter, and the Christian's supposed reputation for grace is in fact an excuse to practice favouritism. Eventually, we have on stage such a confusion of religious stereotypes that someone asks which character is which. Well, the poor merchant can't pay, as we knew already at the moment he made the foolish contract. And so Portia, this play's mercy persona, comes, also in disguise, from the fairy tale land of Belmont, with a clever trick to save her beloved merchant. While her solution involves a highly questionable interpretation of the law, she manages to persuade the ruling authority. As Portia is making her case, she offers one of the most explicitly theological speeches in all of Shakespeare's works. Earth's rulers might think they are most godlike when they enact the law with authority, she says. But mercy is above this sceptred sway. In fact, mercy is an attribute of God himself. She concludes, much as the Duke concludes, that earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Shakespeare, had he indeed been for all time, as a contemporary put it, would be celebrating his own 459th birthday this week. In plays like these, we see displayed one of his most enduring gifts to us, the ability to play with the familiar and make it strange and new. He gives us philosophical and religious figures and themes, and then just as we assume we know who and what they are, he surprises us by showing what sort of dish you can make if you but swirl the ingredients. Our best efforts at justice, whether of the personal or political sort, must be seasoned by mercy. Our acts of mercy, if not ultimately just acts, will turn out to be merciless. Would we have noticed this if no one had let it happen on stage in front of us? (laughs) 
Fanfare for the Familial, What the Coronation Really Showcases, by John Milbank. Nothing rivets our attention more than a family drama played out in public. Currently, we are fascinated, either avidly or guiltily, by the tensions surrounding Harry's attendance and Meghan's absence at the coronation of King Charles III. Monarchy is popular and comprehensible in a way that law, finance, mercantile, logistics and military strategy are not, just because it involves real persons and their relationships. This translates great matters of state into terms which resonate with the ordinary person. However terrible, besides consoling, those matters may turn out to be. Yet for many of the more formally educated, this is not right at all. We should not be confusing the private with the public, the intimate with the objectively open. Fairness is, today, supposed to require a lack of association with the parties involved, such that increasingly the interviewers of a candidate for a job are not allowed to have any previous knowledge about her. Familiarity, and still more the familial, is thought to contaminate the ethical, which suggests that ideally appointments should be made by artificial intelligence and all judgments be systematically computed. Already our individual assessments are no longer trusted, along with the quirkiness of intuition and all tacit knowledge acquired by direct acquaintance. Instead, we are expected to act as much like robots as possible and to reach verdicts only by box-ticking according to pre-assigned criteria. For such an outlook, monarchy is a supreme anomaly. The subversion of public process by private whim rendered hereditary. It surely enthrones not just a man, but corruption and forms the capstone for the continuing operation of a decadent inherited establishment. Yet, there is another way of looking at all this. Is it any accident that King Charles who has not arrived at his position by following due process or pandering to the needs of factional fashion, has consistently been able to argue for and promote more serious long-term concerns of the common good than have most politicians. Our built environment, the stability of nature, the sustaining of craft skills and the training in disciplined virtue of the young, whatever their class origins, all matter supremely. And yet it is the Crown and not Parliament that has been most freely able to point to these things and to do something about them. More fundamentally, there are reasons to doubt the simple association of the private with interested corruption and the publicly abstract and objective with ethical disinterest. Where do any of us first learn to obey, to share and to sacrifice, besides how to exercise our positive creative talents? always within the bosom of the family, in whatever conventional or unconventional way this may be constituted. Moreover, within this bosom, rivalry and even competition are actually discouraged, even though they inevitably arise. Our parents want us to succeed, but not at the expense of our siblings. Self-expression and self-realisation are fostered rather than suppressed and yet they are not permitted to overrule cooperation. Within the family, we learn that nothing is possible for us alone and that we have a part to play in a greater whole. 
School expands this vision, and yet to some degree it already undermines it. We are now openly and almost shockingly encouraged to compete and to outperform. The less successful children are effectively abandoned by their new surrogate parents. The Victorians deliberately tried to counteract this by encouraging also house and school loyalty and a genial competition in sports and debating with other schools and colleges. Yet, when we leave school and university and join a workplace of whatever kind, this geniality starts to vanish and the competition becomes more cutthroat. We now need to help undercut rival operations and even systematically to exploit our clients or customers. In consequence, evil gets ever more reduced to crime. We are allowed to do some pretty bad things so long as they stay within the rules and we, and above all our employers, stay out of jail. Some of us will go on to become politicians or will have pursued that career from the outset. Now things get worse. In the international context, even the rule of law becomes patchy and shaky. Even where the international rules are followed, it is understood that national self-interest prevails and is wholly legitimate. It would be beyond shocking for a parent to tell their children that they must pursue selfish family interests at school and work to sustain that at the expense of all other people by whatever means possible. It's just such an attitude that defines the mafiosi or the camorra. And it would still be shocking for a business person to tell their employees that they must pursue profit at the expense of their own town or country, even if this is often what covertly pertains. Yet a politician can readily get up and say that the interests of Britain, or whatever country they come from, for her, first and last. Even the claim to be fighting for freedom and democracy, or some such, cannot survive if it is seen to clash with the interests of the nation, despite everything Biden has had to concede to Trump on this one. There thus results something that has perplexed me ever since I was a child. The very selfishness and ruthlessness that is exorated at the domestic hearth is ultimately encouraged in the public citadel. Does this mean, as the French philosopher Henri Bergson suggested, that most ethics really exist just to ensure the solidarity and efficiency of a war machine? That what we take to be moral is little more than an ethnic survival mechanism? Bergson accordingly suggested that real ethics must be global and universal. But as we are discovering today, that seems too abstract and unrooted for most people. We cannot really love everyone effectively and equally. That is why Augustine suggested instead of an order of love, whereby we extend our love in ever-widening circles from the closest to the most far off, while allowing that our sympathy with remote people has to take the form of some support for those who are truly close to them. The only way, therefore, to counteract the tendency of morality to mutate into disguised crime the nearer one reaches the boundaries and the margin of society, is to extend the familial principle, such that all are variously sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, daughters and sons, as indeed we truly are, as constituting a single race. At the same time, one big human family 
can only be an effective family if it is also a family of cooperating families. A vast extended family, if you like, on a principle of covenanting cousinship. The world religions, and especially the Christian religion, have exactly operated this principle of an extension of the familial across all borders, which can alone ensure that ethical action is both immediate and real, and yet not the mask of a collective egoism. Beyond the merely political community, the church, like the family, is all-inclusive in its purpose. It offers at once citizenship, educational formation, reconciling process and collective cult, linking us to the divine. At the most ultimate boundary of the human race, it can also ensure that humans respect other natural creatures. And at the most ultimate boundary of all, that of finite reality as such, it can ensure that the principle that reigns is not mere utility or survival, but our love of God, who is in himself in a loving relation. Such covenanting cousinship, or dividing only in order to link, always puts relationality at the centre, instead of mere self or collectivity. The aim of the ethical as love is itself relational connection, and it is only the latter that puts a break on our worst instincts, which we cannot always for ourselves override. Family members check each other, as do citizens, and as also should corporate bodies if they seek finally organic cooperation rather than unlimited competition. It not only should be, but also actually is the same with nations. As the German philosopher Friedrich Schelling declared, it is in the end nations interacting with other nations that put a break on tyranny arising within nations, something that no mere constitution or inner balance of power could curb forever. For a nation thinking of itself alone always risks descending into a shared ruthlessness that will typically be exercised both within and without. The church, as an extended family, is not a democracy, but a mixed constitution, involving single headship, the wise advice of a few, and the popular consent and modification of proffered norms by the many. From a Christian perspective, a good social order as familial, should echo this. And this is why constitutional monarchy would appear to be a suitable, though by no means the only possible form, for a Christian country to take. Its mixed constitution involves some role for aristocracy, or wise leadership in the widest sense. An aristocracy ought, in theory, to be the opposite of a mafia. Not the subordination of public interest to family, but a particularly strong and sacrificial association of person and family within public interest. This is one crucial and political way in which the familial principle of the order of love can be constituted and rendered real. Of course, today, what we have instead is rather the covert extension of the rule of the mafiosi, as big moneyed crime undercuts law and even operates outside its sway altogether. As a seeming anachronism, monarchy stands at the apex of the aristocracy and yet also transcends its concerns by more direct linkage to the whole population, 
to whose attitudes and needs it needs to be especially alert. I've already mentioned just why and how King Charles performs this role effectively, and in such a way as to counteract existing trends which more and more make a mockery of ordinary morality and decency, reducing it indeed to discipline for the mass troops corralled into the service of armed power. Charles instead continues to serve the religious and not just Christian principles of the extended familial, of the order of love and covenanted cousinship, upon which alone the survival of ethics depends. Not only is there no salvation outside of the church, thus understood, there can be no genuine moral life either. For these reasons, the coronation, which we eagerly await, will indeed be a truly Christian event and sacrament, an influx of grace in these unprecedentedly darkening times. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.